Welcome to the Thrival Festival. This is where it happens, the intersection of humans, technology, creativity. In the next three episodes, we'll be digging a little bit deeper in some of my favorite topics and themes from the 2018 edition. On the agenda, paternalism in medicine, AI applications for healthcare, and problem owners versus problem solvers. I'm your host, Karina Paraskiv, and you're listening to Healthcare Focus. One area where I think Thrival really stands out is that it's particularly good at bringing together different industries and weaving a common thread. And so throughout the day, you heard things about data dilemmas, ethics, inclusive designs, tech audits and disruption, the fourth industrial revolution. And it crossed a, a number of different angles that we're perhaps used to seeing, like smart cities, body hacking, UN strategies and education. But the fact that they were all together under this one roof really made a lot of cross-pollinization possible. And so that's the general expectation when you do step onto um, any of these thrival um, conferences or talks that, that are happening there. But it turned out, and that really surprised me, that you could also dive really deep into your own industry. And that's as much in terms of the topic as the people who are actually at the conference and that you get to encounter. And I think that's very rare to find in a conference, right? It has as much breadth as it has depth. And what I've done is actually go into these niche topics and explore that even further, drill down in good Chatham House rule style, um, by taking one quote that really struck me and building around that to understand a little bit deeper what was meant. And so today's episode, we're looking at uh, the following quote, medicine has been shifting from paternalistic care to participative care. And this was said as one of many great points on the stage uh, during a biohacking um, talk But I wanted to take a moment and really dive a little bit deeper in this tradition and this shift that's happening and understanding a little bit why it's actually interesting <laughs> and not self-evident. seventy-four Code of Medical Ethics of the American Medical Association. The obedience of a patient to the prescriptions of his physician should be prompt and implicit. He should never permit his own crude opinions as to their fitness to influence his attention to them. A failure in one particular way may render an otherwise judicious treatment dangerous, even fatal. Fast forward to today's code of ethics. The patient has the right to make decisions regard, regarding the health care that is recommended by his or her physician. Accordingly, patients can accept or refuse any recommendation for medical treatment. So you see that there's a very big shift there in, in between the different um, eras, I guess. And obviously, the, the patient's informed consent in 1950s really was one of those turning points. But when you look at these things, there's a tendency to really see polar opposites, to believe that there's on one hand the paternalistic care and on the other end the participative care. And this is where it gets interesting because if you look at how the uh, American Medical Association talks about these, it's not as black and white. So there's definitely, there are two dimensions to this. There's definitely a spectrum that goes from what we call patient autonomy, that's the patient-centered care, to Uh, the other end, which is benevolent uh, paternalistic medicine. So that's basically the patient as a decision maker versus the doctor as a decision maker. But the MAMA came in 2006 with, uh, actually they copyrighted a doctor-patient model that went back to 1956, and they're filling in those missing steps, right? So they talk about on one end the mutual participation to 
guidance or cooperation to activity passivity and that last one is really what we call the paternalistic medicine and it becomes interesting because when you're looking at the clinical applications you actually realize that they they don't prescribe one or the other uh, more than the other it's really they they tell you it's good for certain um specific conditions right or certain situations so for example if you're looking at mutual participation that's what we would call the patient-centered care you would think okay um, chronic illnesses psychoanalysis if you're looking at guidance cooperation that's somewhere where unlike the the previous one where the doctor was basically helping the patient so that he could make his own decision this is somewhere where the the doctor tells the patient you should be doing xyz um and we're dealing with acute infections processes and so on and when you dive into what we call uh, activity passivity that's the benevolent paternalistic medicine we're looking at situations where the person is under anesthesia where they may have had acute trauma um, they may be in a coma and unable to make a decision they might be delirious so it really brings this into perspective and more than that even when you do take something like the benevolent paternal medicine you're not just looking at the doctor making a decision no matter what you can even have gradations in that end of the spectrum so for instance there's a difference between a doctor that says i know what's best for the patient no matter what and a doctor that would say if the patient does not demonstrate that they actually have researched um, thoroughly their position and that it's really Uh, something they've reflected on then I will I know what's best for them and I will enforce it but if they do come with some kind of rationale even though it may not be the same values or the same priorities that the doctors has then the doctor might say okay that person did do their due diligence they are having what we call informed consent therefore I will let them pick the the outcome that they chose so even at that end of the spectrum um Doctor knows best can also have different shades there. So if you're looking at the emic view, all of this, what we're seeing is that the autonomy actually is linked to a lot of different principles um, of medical laws and ethics. On the one hand, you have um, beneficence, right? So everything we do in medicine, we do it for the benefit of the patient. And there comes a point where the workload becomes an issue because... If you have time to really know the person, then you might understand the subtleties and perhaps what might be best for them. But otherwise, you're basically working under uh, very big time constraints with general statistics. And so there is one point to be made here in terms of how much can we really know what's best for a patient if we don't have the time in our schedule to really address and, and get to know them. Um, the second level is the decision-making capacity. And for this, I'll also talk about the surrogate decision-making um capacity so on the one hand there's the cognitive level so like we've said if um you know you're, you're in some kind of trauma situation you can't really make a decision if you're an infant and you can't make a decision <laughs> at some point someone has to step in and make the decision for you right but even if you are uh, having fairly good cognitive functions and you're able to really understand the treatments you as a person might actually have preferences that vacillate over time so your inability to really stick with one point of view or one preference over time might make it difficult if a doctor were to take uh, the the patient-centric approach to the extreme and cater to changing desires or needs. And 
you step out though from from this picture and, and look at it from a broader perspective there comes a question of burden because eventually it is about the right and the privilege to make a decision but it's also about the burden like who is going to take the responsibility for this and in many cases it's divided between either the patient the family the doctor or a combination of the three and it's not something that's always desirable and sometimes we forget that so some patients are very proactive and they want to take the lead on their health they come into the office they've researched their diseases they're very, very proactive in that sense and other patients may not have the time they may not have the resources there might be a lot of things going on um, or they might not have the knowledge or the capacity to really understand very intricate details so they might say i prefer that someone with the authority and the knowledge take the decision for me so it's very interesting to see that sometimes that burden it's it's not just a question of whether the doctor wants or not to have the patient involved there's also a question on the other side of whether that patient wants to be involved as well in that same capacity there's a question about disclosure so this is where it gets really interesting um And where I would actually question something. <laughs> There is a book that was written not long ago. It was called The D Good Doctor. And this is where a young practitioner who has a dad who was also, his father was also a doctor, writes about the differences between the generations. And he says, at the time, my father sometimes did not tell someone who was terminally ill that that was their condition, that they were going to die and that there was nothing they could do to save him. And he sustained the argument that because he knew the family very well or he knew the patient um, for so so long he knew that that was deep down the thing that they would have wanted right to not be told that it's all over and to still like give them peace of mind in a sense as, as they and hope as they they continue and he was appalled by that the young physician because he said no there is a it's mandatory to to fully disclose things and One of the things I came across when I was looking at uh, genomics research was, okay, but do we always want to know everything? Because there's also something to be said about the fact that if I can pick up on something that um, your, your you know, condition that you have or maybe even genes that in 20 years from now something will happen, but there's nothing you can do about it, does it really enrich your life that I tell you this? And so that that question of disclosure is also interesting when, when it comes to that. Then there's the futile treatment Um, which has to do a lot with the payment model. So when it's a patient-centered care, we also have to wonder something um, in regards to how does that affect the system? Because if every patient gets to pick what they want, the way that they want it, and it's participative to the extent where the, the, the um, patient becomes almost the decision maker, there's no incentive to think about the system as a whole. And so part of the mechanisms that exist today like the copays and the high deductibles are there to help incentivize the patient to also think twice about some of the requests he's having uh, but nevertheless it still is something that <clears throat> the more you go towards that uh, end the more you're dealing with the systemic problem of limited resources and how are you going to actually share them across the different people who have different needs and that's uh, the polar opposite obviously of a doctor when Um, in a situation where this is really um, one decision maker that can have more control over the system and the, the resource that we share. And the, the last point that I want to bring here, which is also interesting when you're looking at um, whether it makes sense to have patient autonomy versus uh, paternalistic medicine, is this idea of malpractice. There's a danger when we go to the patient-centered um, <clears throat> mindset, right, to 
become what they call the servile technician. So that's basically all care, no responsibilities. And there were studies that were done, and it was quite interesting when you're looking at the figures, because you realize um, a lot of the treatments that were prescribed were not necessarily things that the doctors wanted to prescribe, but they were things that they actually felt pressured to prescribe. So if we're looking a little bit at the numbers, um, we were looking at 500 doctors and 83% of them had uh, prescribed or carried out treatment that they actually did not believe were um, pertinent for the patient. And 60% of uh, these doctors, of the doctors when they were polled, said that they actually went ahead and did that because they were concerned about uh, basically getting sued, about the fact that there was a lot of pressure from the patient, and so they went against their professional judgment to please and, um, you know, back themselves up from the patient. And in something very similar, when you're looking at the Royal College of Surgeons, they actually changed the their statements and the, the approach that they're having, where uh, after being sued for five million pounds because a baby was born with disabilities and the mother said she hadn't been advised properly in regards to the risks and so on, um, they've actually uh, put out a new statement that said, uh, we're, we're going to step away from paternalistic attitudes and we're going to let the patient decide what's best for them. So we give them information and they are liable to make their own decisions. So there's definitely an economic argument that comes into the picture and it may not be <laughs> the the right argument, right, to, to go towards centered, uh, patient-centered um, care, but it's, it's nevertheless one of the factors that perhaps has um, tilted a little bit the balance in that favor. After looking at all these angles, it quickly becomes apparent that you can't have a dogmatic position on this question. There's really a context in, under which to look at both the paternalistic approach, which has its place, and the patient-centered care, which also has its place. Now, an interesting thing to bring into the discussion is this idea of payment, and we touched a little bit about it right before when we were looking at ethics. But it's interesting to push the idea a little bit further when you're looking at it in terms of ecosystem. We've seen a lot of different things come up when it comes to being more efficient and uh, improving the payment situation there in that sphere. Continuous quality improvements, um, managed competitions, paying for performance, consumer-directed health plans, uh, medical homes, and accountable care organizations under Obama. So a lot of these trends uh, are trying to find a solution to the rising costs of healthcare, to the fact that the population is aging, and so on and so forth. And one additional trend which changes a little bit this, this whole discussion is this idea of mergers and acquisitions, which there have been a lot in the past uh, few years. And why is this relevant? When you're talking about patient-centered care, and you're looking at empowering the patient to be autonomous and make their own decisions, you're also saying that the patient can have a say in the treatment that he chooses, more so than in the paternalistic model. Now, this can actually be uh, counterproductive in a system where the incentives are not aligned for this. What ends up happening is that when you give a choice to the patient and you're being, um, you know, encouraging of patient autonomy, over one quarter of the patients actually decide to forego surgery when they're better informed. And the tricky part of this is that 
if you're going for elective surgery, then you're not really bringing in that much money if you're only rewarding doctors for providing more care, so to speak, rather than that better care. And this is true, but it's true only in situations where the insurer is not integrated with the delivery system. In other words, this is this used to be true in a, in a landscape where hospitals were functioning in one way and insurers were you know, a distinct uh, entity and there was no correlation between the two. But once you see healthcare networks coming together and often through mergers and acquisitions, having both the delivery side and the insurer side, that's when it becomes really interesting because offering to the patients more information and letting them choose of their own volition reduces the risk of legal pursuits, which is a, a first um, benefit of, of this action, but it also enables costs to go down because suddenly having a non-intrusive uh, treatment, which is usually typically what the most patients end up choosing, ends up less costly for the system as a whole. And so that's really uh, one other game changer I would highlight, which also brings a different perspective to this discussion because it's sometimes it's not just about the, the, the dogmatic position that you may have regarding whether we should be paternalistic or user uh, or patient-centered, but there's also this added layer of who pays for this and how are these incentives allowing you to do either one or the other type of care. Okay, last little bit here, I want to look at two things, internet and genomics. So you probably know this instinctively, but just in case there's studies about this too, um, patients, a lot of them Google things on internet, they even talk about Dr. Google. So here's one finding uh, from one research, but of course different researchers will tell you something different, so have a look at our show notes if you want to see what this particular one was uh, set up as and so on. 60 to 80% of the internet users have actually used it to find health information. So that could be trying to figure out if the diagnosis they have is correct or to self-diagnose or trying to research medication information. And it turns out that two-thirds of the doctors in this research actually found the, the information to be somewhat reliable. And this is interesting because <clears throat> on the one hand, the, the patient is being very involved and that's exactly what we mean by having a patient-centric uh, model in terms of medicine. But the doctor-patient trust can actually uh, undergo some level of erosion because the patient is now armed with a lot of knowledge, but he doesn't have the schooling or the experience that the doctor has. And so sometimes that can actually create a difference, a divergence in opinions. Um, it might also be that they look up really niche things that the doctor maybe isn't specialized in. And the problem here is that the, the patient has always been able to switch doctors, basically, so to walk away and find another provider. But now there's this added pressure because he's got the extra information and he's now evaluating his doctor, which perhaps he was doing a little bit less in the past. But at the same time, this brings a challenge because the, the patient comes with a lot of information, not necessarily the background knowledge to really interpret or understand it, and now the doctor has to take extra time to review these things, to correct and educate uh, in terms of the information found, and perhaps back up and justify some of his decisions. And that's time that may be not built in right now in the system to um, adequately uh, discuss this. And I think the one of the 
biggest things that you you see there and that also drives us to the next topic is um there was actually the mea uh published an article in last september that was called your patients asking Uh, about her 23andMe results, now what? And I think this really shows just how far this trend is going if even the MA is talking about this, right? Um, so th this brings us to the genomics topic uh, as a side note too. When you're looking at personalized medicine, you're looking at collecting, collecting data and you're, you know, you have to have a large amount of it for it to be meaningful, but you're also looking at lifestyle data points and other contextual information like the environment and the stress factors and whatnot and this whole data collection is really interesting because in both cases they're really the the patient's data right they're data that uh they, they might be collecting themselves through devices that they have a they own at home like a fitbit and so on or it might be just dna things that is in their body but you can't really take without their consent and so Under the current legislations, both of these scenarios involve active consent and actually active participation from a patient so that you can gain, gain this data. But the, the balance of powers then is really shifting because previously we could decide that it would just be a paternalistic model and that the user, uh, the patient, sorry, would not necessarily be involved in decision making. But this only works to a certain extent because as soon as you actually require information and data from the patient, you need his buy-in. And so this changes a little bit the dialogue and the, the interaction between the patients and the health institutions. So suddenly the doctors need the patient just as much as the patient needs the doctors. Some patients may want a paternalistic style. So as we've seen, um, sometimes it's about you know ability to make decisions and, and really know what's best for you. Maybe you don't feel confident about that as a patient, but there's also a cultural component. So it's been shown that in Latin America and in Eastern Europe, having a patient-centric model sometimes was detrimental because the expectation and the way people were really, um, the, the need they were expressing was more towards paternalistic care. And at the same time, some of them may want to be active participants. And so having a system where they're not able to come in and share the, the data that they found, having access to all these technologies, that may actually be something that harms the, the patient compliance and the, you know, the, the, the participation and the, the fact that they remain with that specific doctor instead of switching. So the trend is definitely undeniable. But it turns out that... <clears throat> It might actually be a pendulum that will eventually come back in the middle. So as, if, as it's gone to one extreme with paternalistic care, perhaps now we're exploring the other extreme because of liabilities and so on and malpractice suits where we're really being very uh, patient-centered. And maybe somewhere in between those two extremes, based on the different contexts and the different needs, we'll find just what the right way to interact with each patient with their own Uh, needs and their own preferences and their own situations might be so that we can deliver the best care. You've been listening to Healthcare Focus and this episode is actually part of a three-part series on the Thrival Festival. So the next two episodes 
we're diving into two other big themes from the 2018 edition, and that is the AI and data biases, except we're going to look at it not from a broad perspective, but specifically what it means for healthcare, what we should be paying attention to, and um, how do we actually uh, pursue the tradition of ethics that exists in the healthcare industry now that new technologies are entering the field. And we're also going to explore something that um, is quite an interesting concept that they brought forward. So they were mentioning you know, how our society has so many problem solvers and how that there's really a premium on creative problem solving. But what if what we really needed was a problem owner? So that's up next on Healthcare Focus. In the meantime, do check out uh, Thrival's website. It is thrivalfestival.com. If you actually add slash speakers at the end of this, you can check out some of the people that were on stage this year. And they include a lot of um, brands and names that you know, but it's very interesting because the people speaking are really uh, the innovators in those companies, right? So we're looking at UPMC, Duolingo, Dell, uh, PNC, Google AI, and also, of course, our two big universities here. So University of Pittsburgh and CMU, which is <laughs> the university I'm part of. And I think just as a general trend, you'll be able to see scanning through the different topics that they were having this year. It gives you a very good pulse of what's going on in the market in fields that are maybe different from your own and even in your own. So that's quite an interesting money-spending exercise to do. Um, the registrations won't be up for a little while. The event happens in early fall, um, but do stay tuned. It's definitely an event that is worthwhile here, right here in Pittsburgh. So until next time, have a great week and we'll see you on our next episode of Healthcare Focus.